Well, it is a real, real honest joy to be here at Kingswood. I've heard about your school for a number of years, but never had the occasion to be here, and it's wonderful. I'm so happy that God brought me here. I am grateful to God for that. I have really been enjoying my time here with making new friends, especially the students. I've had some opportunities to chat with you informally at meals and, and uh, other occasions, and it's, it's great to be with young men and women of God. I love my students at Indiana Wesley, and they, you remind me of them. You're all in this generation of God lovers that really have a calling in your life to help the church be the church that Christ wants it to be. And I have every confidence in you and in what God will do in you. And so it's fun to be here. I also have a few good friends that preceded me here, Dr. and Mrs. Smith and Dr. Weatherby. And it's really neat to be with them, to see them in their context. To meet new friends like Jenny Lee and John and others is, uh, is great, is truly, truly a gift. So I wanna begin by first of all, uh, greeting you in the name of our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. And I also bring you greetings from my home university, Indiana Wesleyan. So thanks for letting me be here. When I was invited to preach, I was given freedom to choose my text. That could be dangerous and uh, what I would preach upon. But since the themes of your campus during October and especially for Pulse has been worship, it would make perfect sense for me to uh, preach upon a subject of worship and a text. Among several of the more profound post-resurrection stories is one found in Luke 24, and it's probably my favorite of them all. It's one of those passages that just seems to have so many stories within a story that you keep unwrapping it and, and realize there's more there than I could ever dream or ever exhaust. But no matter what vantage point uh, with which we approach this fantastic story, it always seems to take us to the same place. And that is the reality of the presence of Jesus Christ among followers, among worshipers especially. So this morning I'd like to reflect upon corporate worship and the presence of Christ. And uh, we must begin with the story from the word of God. And so Luke chapter 24 uh, beginning at verse 13, and as you know, this is, occurs on the day, the very day of the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? He asked. Well, about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. 
But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what's more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning and didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what had been said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. And then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him in the breaking of the bread. And he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the 11 and those with them assembled together and saying, it's true, the Lord is risen. He has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. This is the word of the Lord. I wanna begin by telling you a true, true story. Uh, before I moved to Indiana about 10, year, 10 and a half years ago, I was executive director of worship and music at a large church in Hollywood, uh, California. And uh, I wanna tell you about how the sanctuary was built because this story, you have to kinda understand the context to get this story. Sanctuary was built in a manner that there was a very large area of floor seating, kind of like this, only fanned out deeper and wider. And there was this huge balcony that went 360 degrees, the entire circle of the sanctuary, and it was fairly high. The sanctuary, uh, I'm not sure how many that seated, but the balcony, I'm told, seated about 1,000 people. So if you can envision how big this balcony was. The choir loft was the front part of the, of the balcony. And uh, it was high and lifted up, sort of above the uh, floor seating like this. So if you can envision this, the choir could, was at the same level, obviously, as the back of the balcony, and so they could look directly over the main section, and they could look across all the way to the balcony being on the same level. Well, I was the choral director for the choir, and I had a special seat in front of the choir, just my little spot. And about 15 minutes into the service one Sunday morning, I heard a very loud whisper from someone in the alto section right behind me. Now, they know we don't talk or whisper during church in the choir, but I heard this little conversation. And I heard an alto say, there he is. 
And another person next to her said, who? Bono. Bono? Bono. Where? This, this is a true story. It went just like this. Center balcony back row. I don't see him. Under the window. Oh my goodness, it's Bono. But this was the worst. Pass it on. I'm going, really? Honestly, from there, the news of Bono's presence in worship moved down the alto section and into the sopranos and eventually circulated throughout the choir. And I will admit, I looked for Bono too. I did. I was very discreet, very subtle, but when it was appropriate, like when eyes are closed during prayer, I went that way to see if in fact the guy with the colored aviator eyewear was really there. Now, um, he was really there. When we started worship, we had no idea that one of the most popular rock stars in the world was in the congregation. But then we discovered his presence. Now here's the irony. Bono was apparently uh, interested in church to seek the presence of the one who really mattered, while we were momentarily more captivated with the presence of someone who made no difference whatsoever and worship. And perhaps that's because we, like the disciples on the road to Emmaus, really had no idea who we were with actually in worship after all, which is in fact the risen Lord. The travelers on the road to the village of Emmaus, the evening of the resurrection, had no idea who they were with. They were exhausted, they were frustrated, they were clueless. It had been a rough few days in Jerusalem. They were disciples of Jesus, and they had witnessed their beloved master tortured and murdered. They saw it all. And they now felt like fools, because they had believed this guy. They had followed him. They had bought into the idea that he was the Messiah, but now all hope was gone, because the Messiah was nowhere to be found. They had no idea that they were actually conversing with the person who was missing. Because, as the scriptures said, their eyes were kept from recognizing him. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? <laughs> the disciples who are mourning the death of their master, whom they dearly love, can't tell it's him. He's there, but it's like they don't see him. Say he's there, but it's like they don't see him. Jesus approaches them, engages them in conversation, inquires about their sadness. After listening to them, he addresses their concerns by explaining the reason for it all. Beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them all the things about himself. Didn't seem to help much. They were still clueless, confused, and they still had no idea whom they were with. Yet this conversation with the stranger does seem to mean something. They just can't figure out what that is. 
And so they invited him to hang out a little more, come in and stay with us. The scripture says they urged him, they prevailed upon him to stay. And he did. And then the oddest thing happens. While at table, Jesus took bread, bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to them, which I think is very odd because he's the stranger in the house serving them in their own home. He, the guest, becomes the ultimate host. But it was at that moment that Christ was made known, scripture very specific, in the breaking of the bread, is the moment of recognition. The very real presence of their very real risen Lord had been with them all along the way, and they had not known it. It was then that they realized that their story was enfolded into God's story. At that very moment in their lives would never be the same. The same would be true of their worship, and the same is true of ours too. I think that this Emmaus story is a window into the importance of the real presence of Jesus Christ in Christian worship. You see, the real presence of the living Lord has everything to do with Christian worship. Perhaps we should begin at the beginning and ask what is worship, but it might be easier to say what it's not. And we have to make some claims here. First of all, worship is not music. And music is not worship in terms of being one and the same. And I'm sure you've heard that before. But sometimes our language and the way we discuss these matters kind of betray, betray that idea. We talk about having a great time of worship and usually when that happens we're referring to the great wonderful band that led us in our songs. We call music worship as if the sermon or the offerings or the prayers are not worship. Worship is a wonderful, music is a wonderful avenue for expressing our worship and for conversing with God, but it isn't the sum total of our worship and we shouldn't confuse the terms. And worship isn't a program. I mentioned this Wednesday at Pulse. Um, for decades, worship in many places has resembled a religious program and we have a topic and the topic is God. So we present a program about our topic and we sing about God or tell about God or discuss God with the idea that God is somehow listening in as an another attendee from above. We arrange for performers and we hope that they will add an effective dimension to our little program. We have the best of intentions. Nobody means it by ill, but we have this idea that this is what we're to do. But here's the very point, I think, at which we've gone astray. It's all in the prepositions. Uh, I'm not an English major, and so I'm still learning grammar. I learned more grammar studying Spanish than I did ever studying English. Maybe you've had that experience as well. When I was a young child, I didn't get grammar very well, and my parents were both English majors, and so they would try to help my brothers and uh, me try to figure out, for instance, what a preposition is. And I can remember they told me, well, um, a preposition is everywhere a dog can go in relation to a house. 
And so they said a dog could be on the house or go around the house or lay by the house or run through the house or lie in the house. You get it. All of those are prepositions. And I think it's probably an oversimplification, but it sure helped me as a fifth grader try to diagram sentences. <clears throat> well, I think the key to understanding worship is in the prepositions. Because worship is not about God. God is not the topic of our gathering. Christian worship is not a musical concert where God is the subject of the songs. These kinds of models don't begin to resemble biblical worship really at all. That's because we're using the wrong preposition. Worship is not about God. Worship is with God. And it's with God. Here's another preposition. Through Jesus the Christ. And there's a presence in the room. This very day, this very moment, Christ is actually like right here. I believe that. The scriptures teach us that. Not some far off Christ who watches down from the heavens to see if it's good or not. But among us, as a worshiper, prepositions start to matter. In Christian worship, we lay aside the program model for the story model. And I don't mean that every Sunday we start with Genesis and preach our way to Revelation, which some preachers try to do. I simply mean that when the community gathers, we're called to step into a story that's ongoing. And we find our place in that story and we celebrate and proclaim and rejoice in and rehearse and love on the story of God. And the most important thing that I can tell you about worship as the story of God is simply to say this, and I affirm this, that the presence of Jesus Christ is the centerpiece of our worship because Jesus Christ is the heart of the story. The story of God past, present, and future revolves around God's son. That's by God's plan. God's decision on that. God's will. That in fact, worship is completely centered in God's son. As our lead worshiper, Jesus is praying for us. As our lead worshiper, Jesus is singing our songs with us. And I look forward to what Elizabeth will share in the Engage conference this weekend, beginning this evening. She's gonna elaborate on that. Is there some pretty profound thoughts on that in our scriptures? And theologically speaking, I mean, Jesus Christ is actually helping us in our worship in many ways. But it's not only that Jesus is helping us, Jesus is helping this, us be this bi-directional worship thing that's going on. In other words, not just helping us worship God, but actually being a voice from the Father to us. I mean, can, can Jesus Christ do two things at once? Can, can Jesus be both God and human? Apparently so. That's what he is. Therefore, he gets to multitask, he gets to do two things at once, he gets to be God and he gets to be us all at once, helping worship happen.
There are many religions in our world, each with their standard way of worship. And like ours, all of them have prayers of some sort. And all have their rituals. And most of them have their sacred texts. So what makes our Christian faith different than any of these who seem to do the same things? What makes ours distinct? Christian worship is defined by the real presence of the resurrected Lord among us. And that's what makes the difference. That's what makes the difference. Here's those prepositions again. Jesus Christ, it turns out, is in the community, with the community, offering himself as a means through which adequate worship is offered to the Father, all these prepositions, in the power of the Holy Spirit. And every time we worship, whether you, like the disciples, recognize him or not, doesn't change the fact that every time we worship, Jesus is in the house. And our job is to see him. What would this mean? If we believe this, really, what would this mean? I think it would be earth shattering. Because I grew up in the church, was converted at a very young age, had excellent teaching, dad's a pastor, And I never really thought or was presented with the idea of the real presence among us. And it's changed me. I think that if we really believe that, one of the things that would happen in our churches is that we'd stop being so impressed with ourselves. I think we'd quit chasing around after the entertaining preacher who holds our attention. And I think we'd be less concerned whether or not worship scratched our own itch or whether we were fed or whether we got anything out of it. I think there'd be different tweets after chapel, really I do, when we get to our computers or our smartphones, if you're not already using them during chapel for heaven's sake, which of course would not be happening about. But those things. So this morning, I'm here to challenge myself, my students, you, the church, with simply asking if you truly believe that the risen Lord is here, if you truly believe that he is here as a worshiper and one who enables our worship to the Father. I'm here to ask you if you believe that worship past, present, and future, this ongoing entity revolves around Jesus the Christ. In all of his fullness, he is present with us as one of us, helping us do worship well to the glory of God. This morning as we gathered for chapel, it's the case every time Kingswood University meets to worship for a stated time of worship. 
We're meeting with the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. But in some economy of that Godhead, Jesus the Christ is given the job, the holy task of being among us in a unique way, constituting this gathering as something quite different, quite special, and setting it apart than any other gathering. So this morning, I urge you to begin to embrace the reality that Jesus Christ is truly here. The disciples on the road to Emmaus discovered that very same thing eventually. And that's how it's been for me. I've discovered it too, eventually. They started out talking about Christ. They ended up realizing they were with Christ. And that made all the difference. Let us pray. Lord Christ, risen Lord, welcome. And that is enough. Welcome. Amen.